welcome back to Tales from the Cthulhu Scene. I'm sorry we've had such a delay in between episodes, even though I've had this one in the back burner for a while with Corona and just trying to survive and move. It's been really difficult for me to have my mind organized and focused on um, this project. But I'm not giving up hope completely. I would love to continue the next couple of episodes being around space, both uh, intimate space as well as space, you know, the final frontier space. So in order to kind of uh, get this going, last weekend was artist Leah Holleran's birthday. Happy birthday, Leah. And I think her work is quite wonderfully situated in this topic. So... Uh, this interview is with me and Leah talking about both her work with space as well as just thinking about how artists work with scientists and how artists can kind of process information both as researchers and as someone who wants to say something more than just reverberate facts. I hope you enjoy it and this uh, audio track, our intro, is of course by Roger Kim, who uh, gussied it up for us, so it's even better now. Thank you so much, Roger. Okay, thank you. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Cthulhu Scene. Today I am joined with Leah Holleran, who is an amazing artist, uh, educator, and I would say immersive researcher. Leah grew up in, uh, well, she was born in Chicago and grew up in Pacifica and attended uh UCLA for her BFA degree and then went to Yale for her MFA degree. She shows with Luis de Jesus in Los Angeles and has worked with many scientists, researchers, and collaborators over the years. And in the middle of all of that, managed to teach me oil painting in high school. <laughs> I know, a great, great uh, addition to the resume, I'm sure. Um, and I've known Leah now for quite a while and have been in such awe of all of the work that she's done over the years. And I'm very happy to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> or having me here. Uh, I'm in Leah's studio right now recording this. Um, so, Leah, would you mind kind of giving us a background and, in, like, what interest, how you got interested in science and um, maybe even art, too, and, like, uh, what kind of drew you to bring those two together? I think the most important experience that I had was when I was in high school uh, from this physics museum in San Francisco. So um, I, my very first job was at age 15 as uh, someone called an explainer at the Exploratorium where I'd walk around and ask people if they wanted to learn about the exhibits. And the exhibits ranged from things about magnetism, electricity. I would do laser demonstrations and show, um, you know, innocent bystanders like come over here let me show you how a laser works do cow eye dissections and so to be able to do this kind of funny job I had to be trained um, so every weekend when we would arrive this group of explainers uh, teenagers from all over the world they would um, hire 25 students from the Bay Area high school students and 25 students from all over you know Europe, South America, Africa, everyone would come in over the summer and you'd come up with this group and we kind of were trained every Saturday morning for an hour about a certain type of an exhibit or science. And that set the foundation for so many things. Number one, a total enthusiasm for learning, being curious about something that you didn't know you wanted to learn, but in a way that was really um, playful. 
Um, it also made me a um, enthusiastic teacher, and hopefully oh, yeah. you'd agree. <laughs> um, uh, so, but it also um, made me think about making things and the experience of the world. And if we, if we think about what are the commonalities of art and science, it might be easy to say that it's an exploration of the natural world. And the Exploratorium with its hands-on exhibits is exactly that. So while it is a science museum, there's so much art in it and so many of the designers there are really true artists and they're just using kind of physics as their medium. Um, and I worked as an explainer and then I got hired in the machine shop and I ended up staying at the Exploratorium for three years until I went to college. And I think more than um, my undergrad or grad school, that I see permeated what I do in my studio now. Um, you said that you think of my, um, my studio as research-based. I would 100% agree that I think of my studio as like, it's more of a laboratory. There's like 10 projects going on right now. There could be 10 people in here sharing this <laughs> studio. You could look at it that way. But um, there's always something that I'm kind of experimenting with. And um, so I think my practice has always been in dialogue with science, even if it wasn't about science, just the way that I kind of think about art making has been that same way. Yeah, and, and even though like I feel like my main perspective of your practice has been through painting and drawing, like there are so many like aspects of your practice that go beyond that, that go into sculpture, that go into sound, that go into even playing with materiality. I think in a more sculptural or body-oriented way, especially with the cyanotypes. And I guess like do you think of the material shifts as almost being like part of a shift of like process the same way like a scientist would shift their processes? I'm interested in the concept or the subject matter. The material is second to me. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that if there's something like you, you walked in and you said, what is this? Is this about a cave? When I started being interested in how caves formed and crystals formed, um, I made my, uh, my kind of first go-to to understand something is through painting and drawing. It's sort of foundational. Mm -hmm. But then I ended up um, ordering a bunch of chemicals off the internet and growing crystals on some concrete that I chiseled out of my backyard. <laughs> then I ended up working with our architect to make a sculptural installation. You know, the, um, the subject matter determines what the medium is. I'd never had any interest in cyanotypes. I'd never made a cyanotype. But this project of your body as a space at seas is about the history of the photographic process of glass plates. Cyanotype is part of that dialogue. So again, it was like I needed to use an old process of photography to make this project. So I think that they're hand in hand, but instead of thinking like, I, I, you know, I'm a painter and defining myself as such, and that's how I express things. Um, I'm, I think it also is a really exciting opportunity because I'm constantly learning new things. You know, I have never made a video before I made this piece that I have up right now called Double Horizon, um, but it was about time and space, and I thought, well, I should make a time-based medium. <laughs> so I learned, you know, and every time I do a new project, it's an opportunity for me to learn new, something new. And I would hope that um, if our time machines were working and you were to bring me a project from five years from now it, that I would make, it would be unrecognizable to me. Because maybe I'll be just doing, like you said, sound art or performance art. Or you know, maybe yeah. it will be painting, but it won't look anything like that. And I think that's but super that's, exciting. It's interesting, though, that painting still is, becomes the place where you root yourself yeah. for you to understand something. Like, I, I think that... Uh, 
Well, I, I kind of actually want to go back to the cyanotypes for a second and just like your experience with like the research and like how, like, if, can you give me a, a background of the whole project? I mean, I think it's just such an amazing story and I kind of want to go through your, yeah. your process with the whole thing. So um, I had done an installation at the Cahill Center for um, Astrophysics at Caltech. It's 110 circular disks that go through four stories of the building. It was a pretty substantial project. I spent about three and a half years on it. It's essentially based on a catalog of stars, a very famous catalog of star, stars by this um, scientist named Charles Messier, who was a comet hunter in the 17th century. And um, that's kind of its own project and its own dialogue, like its own story. But one of the most fascinating things to me about Charles Messier is that he actually got notoriety, became pretty well known, and then he kind of just disappears. And I was talking to a scientist at Caltech of what happened to his career. He said, well, it's kind of, he was almost put out of business by this um, brother and sister team, Caroline and William Herschel. And um, right in that sentence, I was like, I'm sorry, who is Caroline Herschel? You know, 17th century comet hunter, woman, I mean, is, you know, and I, um, uh, from there, it was sort of a breadcrumb for me to ask how many other women in science in general, but especially uh, astronomy, have been assistants to their brothers, husbands, uncles, um, and we don't know about them. And it led me to this sort of, it seems strange, it's like hidden in plain sight, the story that basically in the late 1800s um, at Harvard University, there's two very important historical things happening. One, the photograph and the glass plate is readily available. And the observatory director there, he wants to photograph all of the sky. It was like the first initiative instead of saying, oh, wow, look at this galaxy. Like, we didn't know exactly that galaxies were outside of our own, but let's look, let's photograph these nebula, or let's photograph these planets, or this comet. It was more like, we are going to just take pictures of the, we're going to document the entire sky. So he, t he undertook this pretty big um, project. He was able to do that because of the, that uh, glass plates. You didn't have to coat them with emulsion yourself. You could order a box of them, and you can take a, a lot of pictures. And then the same time, you have all these women that are being graduated out of all women's colleges, and they're highly intelligent, skilled, and no one will hire them. And so he um, hires uh, women to work in the observatory. He pays them less than half the wages of men, so he's able to double his staff. And in that way, he basically, these women are not allowed on the telescope, but they're doing some of the most important foundational work for astronomy that we still use today by studying the glass plates of the night sky. So there, you can, for those of you who don't know about uh, what a glass plate is, you can kind of backtrack and think of um, just photographic film. Before it was flexible and small and 35 millimeter, it was a transparent glass plate that was about eight, you know, you, you could make them in different sizes. Some of them are circular. Most common is like an eight by 10, a 14 by 11, um, just glass plate covered in photo emulsion. You just mount it to the back of the telescope, open the, um, you know, the ocular, and then you get a picture of the sky. 
So can we go back to what you just said for a second? They weren't allowed to touch the telescopes then? No, women were, it was thought that it was not, um, that it was too much for a woman to be out at night. They could get pregnant from the telescope. No, or <laughs> in the cold. What would happen if a woman was out at night in the cold? Well, uh, the other thing that I think is interesting, though, is there is some sort of, like, strange poetics to that, that you are only seeing an echo of the work that you're doing. Like, you're not able to actually, like, look through the telescope. Yeah. And there's, like, that kind of sad reverberation of like only hearing like the echo versus hearing when someone say something. Exactly. And that actually ties to a question that a lot of people have when they're looking at my cyanotype pieces is what is this like Victorian mirror here? And also the title, it's those two things are actually alluding to exactly what you're saying, that they didn't have access to the sky. So in here, it's like you're brought to the window, but you don't have access of the space. You're right. always held at bay. So this sort of um, kind of frame within the picture is that, where it's framing up the image, and it's very subtle. But you kind of come, but you're not invited. And then the title of the series is called Your Body is a Space That Sees. Because so I imagine that the universe becoming animated through their eyes by looking through these plates these tiny little objects like suspended on glass but they actually don't get to look through the telescope at the object itself yeah and then the other irony is it's like okay yeah you can just look up at the sky you know like but that's not the same that's not like the entire like i guess perspective of it all like you know it's still an echo it's still not everything and even though it's right there it's not there and I don't know, there, there is something really, I guess, I think sad about it. I get, and maybe not, I guess. It is a little bit of a sad dilemma that I think that goes beyond it just being uh, scientific research. It goes into an emotional space. And, like, I feel just in terms of, like, being an artist and, like, thinking about, like, what happens to your art after you die? Like, what happens to the, the I guess, massing of things that you study and care about? Like, there is something, like, a tie to the researchers who have done all this work and kind of, like, were left the planet not knowing about them. And so I feel like you're almost bringing them back from the dead with your work and have kind of a tie to them emotionally as well as, like, ideologically. Absolutely, and I think in a lot of ways when you're looking, especially at the Cyanotype series, when you look at the title, it, this is called Comet After Annie Jump Cannon. It's kind of odd, but I actually think of them as portraits. Right. Because it really truly is about representation and lack of representation. And I don't think that when we think about like who's been left out of history, which is a fant- you know, rightly so, a dialogue that we're all you know having, and we should have had been having for a long time, but... Um, it doesn't need to be something that's like in your face. Like I think that what these women was, were doing in a lot of ways, um, it's easy to get really upset about the story. Um, oh my gosh, they were paid less than half the wages of men, but they were also given amazing opportunities and they were encouraged to publish in their names. And they were, a lot of them, four of them in particular, who made some major contributions, like figuring out how far distance is in the universe was done by one of these women. Probably one of the most impactful things that we have in terms of astronomy um, they became pretty well known in in the time that they were um, working and I think that that um, kind of representation was there and then lost and um, 
that it's it's sort of it's important to kind of keep reminding ourselves of these things. And sometimes you can do that through, you know, and I hoped with my work that it creates kind of an experience of the sky that invites everyone to think, oh, well, why is this woman's name here? And then could that be me? And and not thinking science is for someone else, but it's more of like a general invitation. But I do think of them very emotionally. The blue to me is very emotional. Oh, I don't yeah. know what it is. I don't know many other colors that can kind of represent a darkness, like a richness and also a luminosity at the same time. And there's something very kind of nostalgia, nostalgic about that blue, even if you don't know what a blueprint is or what a cyanotype is, there's something about it. Well, and also like, because they are, may correct me if I'm wrong, because they are prints, like everything is like the reversal mm -hmm. and nobody gets the physical object of the print. And so there is something also kind of like mirroring the fact that people weren't able to look into a telescope. Yeah. And um, I, I, like, what was it? So you actually went to the archives and looked around. Like, what was that experience like for you? That was other, one of my other favorite things about this project. Um, so this project was sponsored by a National Endowment of the Arts grant and partner, partnership with my, the university that um, I work at, Chapman University. And um, basically I um, paired with the archivist there who helped locate specific glass plates that women were touching and working on. So when this says, Comet after Annie Jump Cannon, it's because on the glass plate, there, her initials were actually on the plate. So every time a woman checked out one of the plates and did work on it and made notations on it, they would also make notations on the sleeves. Harvard has, houses the largest collection of glass plates of the night sky in the world. There's over a half a million of them, over three stories. It's just cabinets and cabinets. I love that it's not just kind of a story that's an archive or a research, but the archive itself is physical. So being able to touch these plates, see their initials on the plates, see their writing on the plates, it's, I mean, it was so Im Im impactful for me as an artist, watching, you know, looking at just, just the mark of the hand and then sort of figuring out a way to translate that. And I think you've touched on it, that this is really a series of translations. The photograph is taken. The women then have to translate it through a glass plate. I then take the glass plate and I make a painting on a translucent piece of paper. So it's mimicking a glass plate. Then it gets translated into the cyanotype. It's like these kind of echoes, I like what you said earlier, of the thing that it, sell, the thing that it originally was. Yeah, and I think that like I kind of see this work almost as um, like a first... Uh, attempt to catch a star for you like in being near space and I kind of want to shift the conversation to talking about the work that's uh, currently at uh, Art Center what's the gallery's name again can you remind the me the Mullins Gallery the Mullins Gallery and um, I guess you becoming even closer to the stars <laughs> with your uh, piece Double Horizon and where you basically have been learning how to fly an airplane um, so can you tell me about how this hap happened and like what, I guess, prompted you into this and how it's been becoming a pilot? Yeah. Um, well, the kind of short version of a long story is that uh, my wife and I were walking across a street uh, about four years ago and someone sped up to make a, a, a turn and I got hit by a car. 
And um, at that time, I was like skateboarding every single week. I was, uh, I had just finished my third Olympic distance triathlon. I like, I'm like a Weimaraner puppy. Like the, you know, I need to be like run every day for me to mentally be calm and focused. But I'm a very physically active person. Um, and it was like almost eight months of almost n hardly any being able to move at all. I was in, I had some major issues with my back. Um, and in that time, I was getting pretty down, as you can imagine. And a friend of mine, um, uh, Carolee Weinstein, she's uh, Kip Thorne's wife. I'm sure we'll talk about Kip. Um, she was saying, listen, you and I have talked about this before. You've always wanted to do this. Let's take ground school together. And she talked me into doing ground school. So we did this every Thursday night for 10 weeks at Caltech. And then um, I kind of, you, you can only be in the Caltech Flight Club if you're either a, um, a, a student or professor at Caltech or working at the Jet Propulsion Lab. Um, and uh, I, because of doing the installation and working on a book with Kip Thorne, I kind of begged my way in. <laughs> and um, so I was able to join the flight club. And it was almost like, um, I like to tell the story about the, the car because it really is, very cliche in the sense that it needed something like that to happen for me to take myself seriously because I had always wanted to fly. I had been, um, you know, my father was a pilot, my grandfather was a pilot. I started taking flying lessons in my early 20s and I couldn't afford it. And there's a million reasons why you can't do the thing that you want and you just get in the way. And this was the thing where I was like, you know what? I'm going to dedicate my resources to that. And that resource was either time or money or focus of study time. And um, it was one of the best things I ever did, you know. And what I loved about it is that it had nothing to do with my relationship, my job, my the art world, um, anything. It was just totally a challenge for me to learn something new. And... Um, the feeling of it, you know, the first time that I soloed in a plane was really right up there of watching my daughter being born, you know, because you're, you're just like kind of stunned of the, just the experience of being alive. And I think in art, we sort of either replicate or try to create those experiences. And um, after flying um, for about two years, like many artists, it just sort of seeps in, like, maybe I should make a piece about this, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, I didn't really know, of, like, <laughs> I say this all the time, I didn't really know what I was doing, and then here's this thing, you know, years later. It takes me a long time to develop a project. Well, also, like, I, I don't know if I knew about the car accident as being almost a catalyst for the research to happen, but I remember when I was in, like, a pretty rough uh, car accident, like, I walked away with very minor, um, body problems, but I had a lot of psychological, uh, reverberations. Yeah. Where, like, now I have a really hard time driving next to people and that kind of stuff, and so I kind of imagine that the body shock was also a lot to kind of deal with, and, like, to be hit like that is like to kind of like a loss of control and becoming a pilot is very much about in terms of what I know from speaking to pilots in my family like it's about controlling the last lack of control and like being okay with 
turning your engine off and figuring out how to <laughs> land. Yeah. Like, that stuff makes me so scared. But, like, I can only imagine that that would be really empowering after feeling like yeah. you were plucked from the earth for a second. I know. It seems uh, it seems very counterintuitive. Some people seem immediately confused. Like, okay, you were a pedestrian. You got hit by a car. And then to kind of deal with that, I don't know if it... I don't think, like, I would say that I worked through getting hit by a car by flying. But what it mm-hmm. did is, like, it... it <laughs> It, it gave me a kind of like focus, you know, like people talk about something like rock climbing where it's more, it's like mental meditation more than it is physical. And yes, you have to have that physical, you know, to be in line with, but it really kind of creates a kind of acute attention right. that, um, you know, with flying, I cannot think about anything else. I cannot be, you know, daydreaming about this or that. I mean, it is 100% attention. And especially with um, increasing anxieties about the world, it's how many things are we reading left and right about what the long-term impact is on our attention spans with things like social media or the internet or access to kind of endless information. It just is like this incredible pause in my life. And there's no way that I'm going to, like, I don't want to learn to fly to become a pilot. I never want to teach flying. I don't want to do anything with it. I literally am doing this just so I can, like, fly around in a circle. Yeah. And um, it's just, like, the most fantastic thing in my life to to have that, you know. Well, and I, th- I think that, that that's interesting, too, is because I'm not someone who does good with quiet meditation, I was kind of okay with things like kundalini because they give you an activity to do for a long time. And I agree that my brain health is much better when I have lots of things to focus on that I lose sight of self. And it's interesting that flying enables you to lose sight of self in this really kind of like uh, cosmic way. Yeah, and I think that it's like exploring for the sake of exploring. Yeah. And um, so the piece that I made, I just started. I didn't, you know, didn't know what I was going to do with it. But I um, just uh, kind of like, you know, starting with drawing, at least sort of start recording visually something. So um, I just attached uh, four different cameras to different points of the plane. There was no rhyme or reason. Like sometimes it's on the wing going this way. Sometimes it's on the wing backwards. Sometimes it's facing down. And I just started recording all the flights that I would do. And um, it was like when I would get the clearance from air traffic control, I would push record. And then it would kind of run either till I landed again or until, um, you know, the batteries ran out. And then it was sifting through two years of um, two years of footage to create this kind of what I think of. It's called Double Horizon. It's really like a double portrait of myself and um, the city of Los Angeles. And what I, I want to kind of circle back of the idea of like representation. This is um, in most of my work. I want it to be subtle, um, but like as someone who thinks that, who's for the has been a history of thinking about representation and kind of lack of. I'm an artist that makes work about um, science, but as a queer person, I also have a desire to kind of represent what's not seen. Um, but I've never done it in such an obvious way 
Um, so I love that, like even with Double Horizon, I also have a series of photographs called um, Darkscape, where it's like, when you really look at it, you're like, I am looking at a woman's body in a space that I don't expect. I don't expect a woman to be a skateboarder, skateboarding 11 foot bulls. I do not expect a woman to be flying. It's not my, you know, it's not shocking, but it's not your expectation. And the same thing with, um, you know, Comet after Annie John Cannon. It's like when your first expectation of science that is is not that it is a female space and so i hope that there's also these kind of like subtle multi-layered kind of ideas of accessibility and representation in the pieces yeah and i would even say like maybe this is more of a um you know 1950s 40s perspective of art making but i don't expect a very like like a small person to be making gigantic artworks like this, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I'm, I'm big emotional. I know you <laughs> are. You're you're bigger than this whole uh, block that we're on. Like, and I, I know that. Uh, but I also feel like, like, oh my god, when you walk into the studio, you are just like inundated with scale and just like, I don't know. The work's beautiful, but it's like it's not a physically easy undertaking to do, and I think people forget that with like painting because you know you, you can like you can just say things like oh well they got a ladder or oh you yeah. know they put it on the floor and it's like yeah but you're still traversing all the way around you're still you know doing the labor and you're still making something bigger than yourself and I think that people kind of lose sight of that um, just because there's other things that you know are at the forefront like the conceptual ideas behind these work Um, so let's go back kind of going around everywhere because you know I'm very excited about all these topics but let's go back and talk a little bit about Kip Thorne and the book that you've been working on um, and sort of like how this has been I guess going like working for quite a while now. Yeah, ten years. <laughs> ten ten years. years. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> um, um, you know, I always think it takes me a long time to think of things, but um, this has been, I guess, now the longest project that I've ever worked on. It's been one of the m- most wonderful collaborations um, and friendships. And uh, very kind of an unlikely friendship, you would say. But when I was in graduate school, I started reading this book about black holes and wormholes, Einstein's Outrageous Legacy by Kip Thorne. And Kip is a scientist at Caltech. He had written the um, section of um, wormhole that was in Carl Sagan's um, contact. And he's, you know, just kind of a he's such a great in the like the the kind of the world of science but he wrote this popular book and i loved that it could make me imagine like what would it be like moving towards the speed of light as you got near the mouth of a black hole how would that you know what would happen to time what would happen to vision what would happen to but the way that he described it um was so experiential for me that i based many of my paintings for my mfa show on this book years later i meet him almost randomly at a cocktail party and um, I tell him in just an overwhelmingly gushing manner how I adore him and how his book has been so impactful to me and would he please come over for a studio visit (laughs) and um, he said oh that he would like to and 
that um, there was a young filmmaker who was making a who was interested in making a film about his science and he needed someone who who understood you know Einstein's theory of relativity in 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 a way that could create some description visually um, and would I be interested in maybe helping him do that and I was like of course I would and um, and that young filmmaker was Steven Spielberg and this is for the movie Interstellar Oh, and okay. so I did some of the preliminary tiny little doodles. I was making them in moleskins and just like ripping them out. And now, I mean, just a lesson to everyone listening out there to make your work on nice materials at all times. Because now I'm like, I wish I could have just made it on a regular piece of paper. Um, and he was just bringing them to Steven Spielberg saying, you know, in this scene, it might look something like this. And we just like had so much fun talking. He would come to my studio, kind of blow my mind. I would try to make sense of it and make little drawings. He'd sort of watch me draw, say, no, it's got to be like this, a little more like that. And it was like I was learning through drawing. You know, it's not like Kip was giving me a lecture and then I kind of inter internalized it. It was like a way of just learning something through physically doing it. And then a um, few years later, Kip was asked to do a, um, an article for Playboy. And um, I may, and he said he'd like to do it, but he wanted to have me work with him on it and do the art on it. And um, I made something like eight paintings, and it was, um, Kip wrote 6,000 word, words, and it was just a short description of different parts of the warp side of the universe and what gravitational waves could be. This is 10 years ago. We just dug up the email. It, was, it will be 10 years in August. And... Um, my work went to, you know, the article was done, the artwork went along, and it was, went to a meeting, and we got this email from the editor saying that Hugh Hefner had personally rejected my drawings. Because... <laughs> and, and, Why? Uh, I mean, <laughs> too sexy. Listen, sometimes failure is the best thing that can ever happen to you. So um, he said that they were not, um, that he thought of drawings in a more classic, iconic, and Leonard Nimoy um, way. And right. um, so we were, we happily took our kill fee, and we just loved working together. So we just kind of continued, because every time we talked, Kip would say, maybe there could be another painting or another drawing. And when he first kind of brought this up to me, he said, it might be five, might be eight paintings. Ten years later, I'm... We're still counting, but I think I have over 300 paintings. And at a certain point, about five years ago, um, I had a designer kind of put them together, the paintings next to, as like a really basic preliminary layout. And when Kip saw that, he looked at it and almost instantaneously, he said, you know, I think this could be poetry. Because he looked at it and he saw that the images could transform the thing into this third thing, something else. And so, um, uh, it's been about five years now, and um, we've reworked and reworked and reworked, and um, yeah, we're, we're very, very close. The, bu the book actually went out for submission to uh, publishers yesterday. Oh we have gosh. a wonderful um, agent in New York that we're working with, and we should be um, like confirming a publishing house you know, within a month. Uh, so it feels like it's really close to being a thing. So, like... It's interesting that it's like both of what you're known for 
has come together and has like mutated into something completely different. Like how has that experience been? Like it seems like an amazing kinship and like mutation <laughs> almost. Like yeah. something you guys have become like genetically engineered together into like a third art form. It's kind of amazing. I mean, I all I can say is like I I don't remember telling almost anyone in the art world that I was doing this. I like just didn't see it as like being a thing that can exist in the art world. One of the things I'm actually very cautious of and I feel very critical of in other people's work is the diagram of science or taking science and putting it on a pedestal without critically looking at it. I think, um, and I also, you know, this idea of interdisciplinarity, which is something that, you know, drives my studio practice very, really excitedly drives my teaching. I mean, my favorite classes are classes that are merged in discipline and that I've, you know, written and teach. Um, but I'm really skeptical of just taking two things and putting them next to each other and saying, because this is both touching on a table, now it's interdisciplinary. Right. And so there's this hesitance of um, the idea of illustrating. That the thing is, is that in this book, there are moments when, at, I think, in my favorite moments of the book, it's doing what Kip's words did for me 20 years ago when I was in grad school. It creates an experience. Looking at it and you can get swept away and you feel like you feel a kind of version of a black hole that you never, or some part of a gravitational wave or these odd parts of the universe that maybe you never kind of could envision before. And then there's other moments where I've had to resign myself that it has to be an illustration because it's very technical and specific. As you know, Kip won the Nobel Prize in 2017 because he was one of the founders of the gravitational wave detector LIGO, which gives us a whole other way of looking at the universe, and much of the book is actually about LIGO. And so there's, very th there's, there's things that are very specific. You know, I can't, um, you know, and I want to hold those to be true. So it's, it's kind of an interesting balancing act. And, and I think in the, the bigger sense, like if I think about what the book is in relation to my art practice, I do think it's a third thing. I don't think it's, um, you know, is it, is it my, it comes out of me. So it's, you know, an extension of my studio practice. But I really hope it reaches people that would never have access to um, you know, the art world, who don't feel comfortable walking into galleries, but maybe they're, you know, interested in reading a hundred page poetry book about, you know, science. <laughs> I don't know. But I think that it's, it's really about reaching a wide audience. That's something that both Kip and I feel very strongly about. Like, I really believe that science is for everyone. Being curious about the world is for everyone. And we, that's not the, that's not the story we tell. Um, and I'm hoping that this book helps to tell that story in that way. Yeah, and I, th I think that you also touched on some really interesting uh, ideas just now about like art, science, and the institutions of thought for how they are supposed to, quote fingers, because it's audio, interact with each other. I feel like as somebody who does a lot of interdisciplinary work as well and also works with within science and things like that, like a lot of times artists are pushed to do illustrations of these ideas or scientists are supposed to like gussy up the process of what they're doing to be like interesting looking. And I think think that it is incredibly important that 
there is some resistance from both parties. I think scientists should always be pushing artists to realize that the institutions that they're working in have limitations, that they have, you know, money given to them to do their research, they have to do these deadlines, they have to be competitive in order to continue functioning as labs, and that artists should be challenging them on their like ethical backgrounds, like, are you okay with the fact that you, you know, are testing on animals, that, you know, maybe some of this uh, research might be biased because you're like a white guy, like maybe you should be talking to people outside of you know, the lab in order to get different perspectives. And I, I kind of wonder how you're thinking about that and has like, I guess, put you against, or not against, but like how you kind of consider the art world and its perspective on like these roles. Because, like, because you are so invested in collaborating with scientists, do you have, like, a strained relationship with, like, the art world? I mean, I think it's healthy to have a strained relationship with the art world as an artist. I really do. Because there's, I don't think that there's anything, nothing to me is black and white. You know, like, I love being represented by Luis de Jesus. I love working with them. Um, I also love that my work shows and fairs that it's sold those are fantastic for me but but is it hard to realize that like your friends can't buy your work and that's like the community you're making it for yes that's a that's a different kind of a dialogue or a struggle um, that you have to kind of contend with I think of teaching in a way as a kind of um, extension of my practice just as much as working with a gallery and um, I mean, I love my students. I love working with them. I'm learning something new every year. Someone says something that it just, you know, will put me in a whole new direction. Um, and having an opportunity to work with Kip Thorne, you know, so I'm not looking as my career as a like trajectory in the art world where like the goal is X, Y, and Z. So I think like having a lot of side paths and like kind of right. like keeping, whether it's a dialogue or keeping friction between all of them, I'm critical of the science world. I'm critical of the art world. And, um, and I think that um, maybe remaining healthy is, is just to kind of keep that as like an active dialogue at all times. Yeah, and I don't even really think so much about the art market as much as like trends of like art that's even being produced. Like, there's there's a I feel like we're finally getting to a point where we're seeing a lot of artists that are actually working with like like it, with science and having opportunities to work in labs and doing that kind of research. But for so long, I've I've was taking classes and it was like, oh well, like. We decided to, uh, I don't know, dye the bones inside of mutated frogs a different color because we just wanted to see what it looked like. And it's like, that's, that's not doing anything for science or for art. <laughs> like, <laughs> or for the frog. <laughs> or for the frog. And so, I, uh, yeah, I think like, that's more of what I'm thinking about because like, uh, I do see your work kind of existing sort of above like those dialogues where like I don't think that you're you know going into like any kind of weird trends I don't think of you as somebody who's like even pursuing like 
I don't know, I don't see you pursuing trends in either art or science. I think it's very <laughs> genuine, and I think it's very personal, and I think it's very directed, and I really admire that. Um, and I, I guess I kind of want to shift to talk about like what your residency has been like with Caltech and Huntington Gardens and what you've been up to um, with that program. Well, I haven't started yet. You haven't? No. I when start does it in, start? Um, I start in a few weeks. Okay. But I have um, been in touch. I've had a couple of the curators over um, to my studio. I've identified archival materials that I'm going to work with and so I can talk a little bit about what I plan to do. Yeah, um, but, yeah. Um, I thought that's what you were up to right now. I'm on a sabbatical from Chapman, but ah, I, um, okay. my, it starts in uh, basically April 1st. Um, <laughs> so I'll be, what I'm interested in, and um, I think of this as another opportunity to kind of, I'm not sure what the thing, I can kind of talk about the concept and what I'm going to be studying, but I have an access in, in terms of my research, but I have no idea what it will look like. But um, I'm interested in Southern California, how we have these two instruments that have really been kind of the two of the most um, essential aspects of understanding the universe, and they're 100 years apart. And one of them is Mount Wilson Observatory, the 100-inch telescope that Hubble realized the universe was not only expanding, that's what he won the Nobel Prize for, but... Um, before that, one of the most important things that he did is he realized using Henrietta Swan Leavitt, one of the uh, women in um, the Harvard computer group, she gave us the measuring stick of the universe and um, by using an object called the Cepheid variable. And because of that, Hubble was able to realize that um, our, that there were other galaxies outside of our own. And um, so that was, that gave us a whole other scale shift to the universe that was extremely profound. And two years ago, LIGO, the um, gravitational wave detector, the prototype here is at Caltech, the 40 meter prototype. Um, that was the first time that we ever measured black holes colliding and it's literally measuring the shifting of time and space in the form of gravitational waves. And they were detected, it was very strange, I mean the, the detection was within a month, you know, the 100 inch and the LIGO detection. And so I love that 100 year dialogue between two important uh, tools. And so um, I'd like to make a piece about technology and the, kind of the technology of science setting the kind of speed limit of our desire to understand. Um, and then um, the, the residency is also, I'll be a faculty at Caltech, and uh, this is also a really fun opportunity because I, I don't know who my students are. You know, <laughs> at least if I was going to, say, CalArts, I'd be like, well, I have art majors. Yeah. Here I'm going to have science majors. I don't even know what their majors are. Right. Um, and so I wrote a class about the nature of scale that I think that artists and science scientists all have to think about at all times. Um, I curated an exhibition about uh, 10 years ago with this fantastic physicist at Harvard, Lisa Randall. Um, that exhibition was called Measure for Measure. And since then I've been, you know, it's been something that I've always wanted to write a class about is um, what the nature of measurement uh, the history of measurement and the nature of scale is for a geologist, a botanist, a astronomer, a mathematician. So I'm excited to have a diversity of students in my class and have them do the research to define for their own, you know, their own major what scale means to them. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure you taught me human anatomy. And oh, yeah. We did a lot of body, like, ooh, yeah, like measurements. Exactly. <laughs> so that'll be great. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Do and you remember I, any yeah. of them? Now you're on the spot, Molly. Um, what are the... I think that I remember a lot of the bone names. And I, I kind of remember, like, I think, like, what is it? Like, a foot can fit here? I'm not really <laughs> sure. But I, I think that what's interesting about learning anatomy is, like, how you end up using other bones and other parts of your body to, right. under like, figure out the scale of things. Right. And even from, like, you know, like, stupid comic book drawing classes, it's always, like, how many heads tall is something. Exactly. And, like, how proportion ends up becoming the way you understand scale. Well, I think that that's, like, a fundamental thing is that we think of scale is size. And really, it's a relationship from one thing to the other. And um, one of the things I'm interested in exploring in this class is, like, how do we understand what that proportion is, right? Because you brought up, like, your face is about the size of your hand, right? So that's, like, a proportionate from one thing to the other. But when we're talking about science and extreme scales, that we have the tools to measure these, like, where does your brain turn off? If I say 100, you understand that. 1,000, you understand. 10,000, a million maybe. What about a billion? Do you understand a billion? What about a trillion? How do you, you know what I mean? And as you sort of get to higher or lower scales that are extreme, you know, how do you create that proportionate relationship where you actually understand those? So, you know, one of my favorite films I probably showed you is Powers of 10, maybe oh, 1977. Yeah. But I've always loved, I mean, even then, I didn't, I don't think, um, because it, when you were in high school, I was just out of grad school. It was my, some of my first opportunity of teaching. I don't think I could articulate why it was so important that I needed to show this film, but I knew this is important to artists, you know, in that scale and our understanding of proportion was something we always had to think about. Well, and I, I think that with your practice, though, like the, the micro and the macro, like, become so distorted that they become one. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, uh, to, to see something up close could be basically a universe of itself. And so I think that by pulling out and then going in, like, you're finding those gray areas where it's the same thing. And, like, I think that that is an interesting notion between, inter like, departmentalized, like, right. uh, education. So, like, if you're a scientist and you're, you know writing a number to a certain power as like shorthand for like how far away a universe is like you're thinking about the shorthand but like not really understanding just how infinitely larger that is um it's like a pretty simple concept but when you really think about it like it does get haunting and scary yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so I guess like uh, I've I've been sucking up time of yours and I could continue talking with you forever, but I want to ask you some like kind of dumb questions just to kind of chill you out into your day. Um, but like uh, thinking about like archive and thinking about um, legacy and thinking about you know how hard it is to, for us to kind of capture like lot like our experiences like if you could kind of be contained in an object or a biological sphere or anything like post-mortem like what would it be <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> wait 
<laughs> Maybe this isn't an easy question. <laughs> I get to be like put into a. <laughs> you could be anything. You could be uh, oh like I was asking this question of seed scientists a while mm-hmm. ago and asking them what what kind of plant they would want to right, get. Right, 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 right. And they kind of like gave me very specific answers based off of their research. But I feel like plants aren't going to be your jam, and so I would be interested in like what would be like. Yeah, I think I would have to go with like something like vast and romantic. So I would either do the um, deposited into the ocean or deposited into the sky. Right. In in particle in dust in dust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean that does make sense because you would be emulating the sky again. <laughs> yeah. And um, I guess like what kind of like intake are you taking? Like, or what kind of books and movies have been like? sprouting uh i guess ideas in the studio for you right now oh man that's a good question i've been reading a lot of things about scale because i'm prepping for this class and uh everything from you know the history of um how the powers of 10 got made and even like reading like alice in wonderland and someone sent me this fantastic kids video game about scale so i think that um, i usually kind of take a subject and then i kind of explore it in all different ways um uh, uh, oh God, I just met the, the most incredible book um, that doesn't really have anything to do with um, with what is going on in my studio, but it's called Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls. <laughs> and it, it by um, Nina Renata Aaron, and it just like totally blew my mind. I think... <laughs> What is it? What is it about? I mean, you can't just give me that title. (laughs) I think you should just have that title. It's so such a tempting title, but it's a it's it's incredible. It's about um, it's about like relationships, addiction, love, the history. She interweaves the history of alcoholism in America and the role of women um, in the past hundred years into it's a memoir. Um, It was just so beautifully written. I think a lot of times I love. Balancing out what I'm doing for research in my studio with um, with uh, like fiction or things that you know I love listening to murder mystery on audibles. You know, it's not necessarily. Oh, I need a lot of dumb to balance it out. Yeah, um, yeah. And I mean, in the last month, it's like between the class and um, Kip and I have been really focused. I've been reading a lot of Kip's poetry and a lot of poetry in general. Um, so I think that most of the times I read, it's like research for my studio. Um, and then when I'm kind of out of the studio, it's, um, you know, books that are in the, you know, in the murder mystery genre, memoir genre or fiction. Um, and then I guess my last question is, are you secretly a time traveler in order to oh, keep God. up with your life? Because this is I know. astounding. <laughs> I, I'm still looking for the clone. <laughs> well, the clone's doing a great job. It's yeah. so nice to speak with you and hang out with you, Leah. Yeah. Thanks for, for hanging out with me. <laughs> Thanks for having me on.